Human Tech, a podcast about the intersection between humans and technology. Uh, my name is Guthrie. I am here with Susan. Hi, Susan. Hello, Guthrie. And we also have today a very special guest, Eric Olive, who is the founder and principal of UIUX Training. Hello, Eric. Hello, Guthrie. Hello, Susan. Hey. So, so yeah. yeah. It's another one I, of Susan's contacts. I know. I know. This is called Susan Can't Resist having her favorite people on on the show uh <laughs> well you know it's interesting though guys because some of the people that come on you know we've known for a brief time or recently we had nick fine on and i don't think we had even talked to him until the podcast yeah. episode recording but eric olive is one of the friends who i've known for a long time and eric i don't even know do you know how we've when yes, that, I, I, I now, do Maybe remember. we don't want to give the year. Not, <laughs> yeah, we might not. Too revealing. But but what? how did we first meet? We and first it was a long met. time ago. It was it was it was 2017, right? There you go, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so Susan and I first met when I was uh, uh, a staff, a, a very green uh, UXer uh, staff at, at insurance carrier, and Susan trained. <laughs> me and my colleagues and if it weren't for susan guthrie i would not be the fabulous ux specialist that you see before you today Ah, and then and then through the years we worked on some projects together and uh some usability user experience projects and eric and i um uh, and Eric, Eric taught some courses that has has taught. He still teaches and has taught some courses that you know I worked on putting together. Um, and Eric and I have had many, many conversations uh, about um, the challenge, the challenge of being a consultant in this industry, and yeah. all. Uh, we, we're not going to go there because we could definitely take up like five episodes ranting about, um, why, why UX consulting is so hard and, and why clients often don't make decisions that are best for themselves and their products and their services. Although we'll kind of get into that because I think we're going to talk about decisions, but that is a favorite topic. Of Eric and I. Now, Eric, as we get into today, because I think today we're going to talk about um, probably a bunch of stuff having to do with decisions, having to do with trust, having to do with incentives, and uh, so on. But I want to start this by just just a thought I had while we while we were preparing for it, and Guthrie, you can chime in too. Um, so Eric is is uh, Guthrie, as you may or may not know, because I know Eric a, a lot longer and better than you do. I think Eric is a very organized person, and he likes to be, you know, have all. I guess the phrase is all his ducks in a row, and um, you know, be very prepared, uh, which is something I've always appreciated about him. And and interestingly, when we we were emailing back and forth about the podcast, he sent me an outline of, you know, well, we could talk about this and then this and then this and, you know, in very, very Eric Olive fashion and very, (laughs) one could say, a very normal thing to do, right? But what struck me when he did that was that 
because I tend to do the same thing. I have lists. I organize things. If I'm, and Guthrie knows, if I'm teaching, you know, when we're teaching a workshop together, for instance, or giving a presentation, you know, I definitely have everything, you know, organized. And I'll have times, you know, we're going to do... Uh, th- we're going to do this exercise. It's going to take this much time. Then we're going to talk about this this much time. You know, he. In fact, I think sometimes I drive Guthrie crazy with that. But when you sent me the outline for the podcast episode, my reaction, Eric, was, "Oh no, 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 no! We don't have an outline for this." And then I then I, it was like, "Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Why don't we? Like, why do I think that? Like, what is that division in my mind that there are some things?" We have an outline for and some things we don't. And um, I have some ideas about this, but I don't know if you guys, either of you want to chime in before I give my idea. Guthrie, you have anything to say on that? Well, you know, I think part of it has to do with his with habits and expectations. I mean, how many times have you done this podcast? That's a good question. How many have we? <laughs> we have a number, you know, so we must know. And yeah, it's like sixty something and or I think, seventy something. I mean, honestly, I just think it has to. I wish I, I. There's a there's a fun, cool answer that I think you're fishing for. And I'm not I, fishing for anything. I think I there's the more boring idea. answer that's that's just less interesting that I think is well, actually I want, happening. I want, no, wait, wait a minute! I want to hear both of this. Okay. Well, the 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 cool. I guess like sexier answer is basically that um, uh, something about uh, how, you know, we put together tasks in our head and how this is like a free flowing conversation. That's like a different pathway. And so you, you don't, you know, you're not, you're not treating it like a, like something you have to do, but yet you're just talking. And so it wouldn't make sense to organize your ideas sequentially because it's not that formal. I think the, I think the perhaps more realistic answer is that um, you very much like to feel, I mean, we all do, we as in, you know, humans. So when I say you, I don't mean the literal you, but the human you. Um, You know, people like to uh, be in charge and so if there is um, a structure, especially if it's not one that you came up with, uh, you then feel scared because uh, it's unknown. You know, there are perhaps things that you are not an expert in that, that you know, you may look f- bad on the podcast. And so you, you, you inherently don't want to do what you're, you don't want to go out of your comfort zone um, or, or not be, be in control and so you say, oh, no, I'm, I'm just going to do what I want, as opposed to let's follow an outline that someone else has created. Oh, that's it. So, so we have theory A, which is uh, I approach it differently because I'm thinking as a conversation, not a workshop or a presentation, and conversations follow different pathways. Or theory B, which is I'm a control freak. And so I didn't want to follow someone the, else's outline. But in the best way. <laughs> but in a nice way. <laughs> All right. And uh, Eric, do you have any theories you want to? I, I do actually. With? I, I was I was uh, leaning toward the actually the pathways because as a behavioral scientist, because you are a behavioral scientist, I was wondering if you were 
leaning toward, oh, you know, we use different parts of our brain. You've talked about this on the podcast and with me, different parts of our brain for different activities. So do we somehow cognitively, I guess, associate podcasts or something we've done as Guthrie said, a ha- you know, almost a habit many times with a different part of our brain and somehow think about it differently uh, than we do something that we might perceive as more formal, which I think Guthrie is what you were saying for the, for the, the pathways explanation. Uh, right. Yeah, there's, I mean, I don't know if I quite nailed it, but there's like a cool, sexy answer that has to do with, you know, just our mental model of, of work right. versus play. I mean, there's, there's, there's a fun, sexy answer in there. Um, right. And, and I, that was wonder. I guess I wasn't, I wasn't necessarily think it would be a fun, sexy answer though. It could be, but I was just wondering if uh, asking both of you, if in terms of the neuroscience, if that's the case. I don't think I know the answer off the top of my head, but but Susan, you've definitely on the podcast said things like, "Oh, you know, we do," and to me, we do certain activity. Certain we we conceive of things differently, like we use a different part of our brain when we type than when we write by hand. And I was wondering, could there be something like that going on? But I don't actually know. Yeah. So um, those those are all interesting ideas. I don't I don't have an answer. You know, Yo, Susan, uh, do you do you do you know anything about um, mental habits? Yes. Well, I'm thinking about okay. So if we're going down not the control road, but down the other road, yeah. Um, you know, we have habits like when we brush our teeth, but you yeah. know, but when we, for example, when you play Scrabble, uh, have I'm assuming everyone has played Scrabble. You you have like the letters. Yeah. And and so it's a it's a thinking task, right? But I feel like there are like mental habits you fall into where you kind of like, okay, I need to solve a problem, which is how do I get, you know, the most, you know, the best word using the letters that I have. And so yeah. you kind of, you know, so you start by just looking at it and seeing if anything pops out, and then you move some letters around, and then you like look on the board for triple words. So there's word like scores. strategies. Yeah, so well, and and you do it you know, you're doing it unconsciously. You have you have a habit of how to go about mentally solving this problem, mm-hmm. um, and I think I think we probably do that in a lot of different ways. Um, and so, uh, when we do like different mental things, now I I don't know if habits work the same way as you know salivating at a steak, or well, that's I guess that's Pelovian, but um, or you know brushing our teeth, you know after we floss. Like, yeah. So you're saying our mental habits the same. Yes, I don't know. I'm asking. I I think I think they probably are, but but I think in this case an interesting thing happened when I when I thought about it. So I think it was probably it's probably all a, li- a little bit of everything you guys are saying. Definitely, I'm a control freak. Um, although, yeah, my my money's still on that one. <laughs> <laughs> although I do want to say I do want to say maybe that maybe that's really true. Uh, of that that's the reason why I had that reaction but I th- part of it was the conversation idea I mean we've set these up to be um, to be conversational and interestingly um, I find that very challenging and I, it makes me feel so I kind of like doing it because it's different and and I'm hoping that our audience likes listening to conversations and not just planned interviews but I also know that it makes it, it it's a little scary for me and it makes me feel a little vulnerable you know to get on the air and I mean luckily we're not live so if we totally botch it 
we don't have to post it. But you don't like schmoozing. I love to schmooze. No, I don't like schmoozing. You know, great. I'm an introvert. And so this gets at something actually, Eric, that you mentioned right before we started recording, which is the idea of psychological safety. Because yeah. doing these as a conversation and not necessarily following an outline actually messes with my feeling of psychological safety. Interesting. So it makes me feel and so I, I so I I'm in I'm kind of uh, in one way, it's like avoidance, and you know, I I uh, I'm attracted to it, to the idea of challenging myself and doing something that I don't usually like to do. On the other hand, you know, it's a little scary, and I'd rather avoid it. So, um, anyway, I I you know, that's a good way to waste ten minutes just talking <laughs> about um, my yeah. reaction to the well, the, the control freak thing is interesting though because it's oh, of course it's a loaded term but one way to think about control freak is is not necessarily because people tend to think oh you know I, it means that the person wants to control everything and everyone yeah. around them which is not which is not what you said explicitly but that's what it tends to uh, imply but another way of thinking about being control freak is just the our innate you know desire to um, alleviate any uncertainty, right? Our brains don't like uncertainty, right? You know, my Kahneman and Tavorsky and Robin Hogarth and John Medina, the molecular biologist. I mean, lots has been written about this, right? So we know that the brain does not like uncertainty. And so, and that's why I believe Kahneman talks about the lazy brain, like doesn't like that, right? So availability bias, I'm going to latch onto this answer because I don't, I, I mean, it's, I believe it's physiological. You know, like we we don't we don't tolerate uncertainty well. And I've always kind of wondered if the control freak phenomenon is is part of that, not only about wanting to be like, oh, you know, I've got everything together, but wanting to uh, combat that sense of uncertainty that we all face on a variety of fronts. Yeah. So now now I feel I should. uh, We're doing therapy on me. (laughs) which i probably need okay so one of the things that that uh that we we had on our loose outline slash list was to talk about psychological safety but maybe we should back up and and get into that in a different way so i mean your background eric is very much in uh, it's it's very similar to my background, actually, in that, you know, you were you started off uh, doing usability work and then kind of broadened it a little bit to user experience work. If anyone wants to define the difference between those, which we won't go into right now, and um, and then you really started delving even more into behavioral science and specifically the area of behavioral science that you've been working in the last couple of years, um, especially is in the area of the research on decisions, right? Yes, yes. So, um, and you had commented about uh, the relation, about trust, and uh, Guthrie and I did a podcast recently on uh, trust, the culture of trust, and he's been doing a lot of uh, blog posts about trust. So what do you see as this, you had mentioned about the relationship between trust and psychological safety? Yes, I thought it was interesting. So there's a professor at Harvard uh, whose name is Amy Edmondson, and she's done quite a bit of work. uh, And Michael Roberto, formerly of Harvard, now Bryant University, also cites her work, but basically on psychological safety. So the idea of creating an environment 
uh, of psychological safety, you know, stimulates collective problem solving. So Edmonds says psychological safety is the shared belief that a group is safe for interpersonal risk taking. And so I believe, Guthrie, that that coincides pretty closely or well with what you were calling, you know, a culture of trust. And, and so that includes the boss. And you said this, as I recall, quite explicitly in the podcast, Guthrie, that, you know, the boss has to be accountable. The boss has to admit that he or she makes errors. The boss has to acknowledge her own fallibility and prior errors uh, as a means of encouraging people to take interpersonal risks of their own. So, you know, lead by example. So we could call it a culture of trust or we could call it psychological safety. You had made a, a, a distinction between those two, Guthrie, and I don't think we need to go back into that. But I think that the I believe the idea is essentially the same. The people in an organization need to feel that they can take you know, risks in terms of, you know, the work and projects they take on and, you know, with other people that they can feel secure in this, in the sense I can take this risk, I can ask for help, I can fail and it's not the end of the world. Yeah. So it's an, it's an interesting then, really, you have these two opposite things, right? Risk and safety. Yes, yes. But you, but, but yet they're contingent according to Edmondson's work. Her, well, yeah, you're not yeah. going to, so, so. If there's not a, if you do something and it will come back to negatively affect you, okay? So in, you're not safe. In an unfair way. Then, right. okay. Then, so if you think about it this way, let's, let's say I work for um, some fancy lab and it basically says, hey, look. Go and try to hit home runs and think outside the box, right? Take risks, take chances. Now, if you fail and you take, you know, that's kind of dependent on the size of your risk. You know, if you spend all of the resources on one thing and it doesn't work out, uh, you, you're probably going to be held accountable. But like if you're if you're smart with your risk, you know, we'll, we'll you know, we'll, we'll be like, we, you know, it failed and that's OK, blah, blah, blah. Um, but if if, for example, you, there's not a culture of trust, and if you do anything that's even remotely risk-taking, even even a little bit, and it doesn't work, then the person outside the norm then gets blamed for like the failure of the entire project. Right. So right. the the I guess the kind of game theory, though it's not game theory because we're talking about humans, but then you know what what is more likely than not going to happen is that. Um, most people will just do keep their head down, do what they're supposed to do, even if that's not you know not what's written down is what they're supposed to do, but what like what the norms are in the kind of group behavior that they're working in, and then just, they'll just do that and do what everyone else does, and not take any risks because then if it goes wrong, well don't you can't blame me because I you know I didn't do anything I just did what so and so told me to do. That, that, I think that's exactly right. So, yeah. And I have an anecdote, if you guys will indulge me, but yes. let me just say, say yes. this first. Uh, actually, I have, I have a bunch, but I'll, I'll, I'll just do one, I guess. But what's interesting is, in perhaps in an unexpected way at first glance, right, risk and, and trust are actually connected, whereas you would initially think, oh, well, taking risks it is, I, I mean, if you take risk, it's not safe. So I'm sorry, risks and safety, right? Risks and psychological safety. You say, oh, I take a risk. It's not safe, right? It's safer to not take. And you're quite right, Guthrie. Everything you said is exactly right. If people don't feel 
support it and that they can't. So it's kind of interesting because we tend to, as you said, Susan, they, we tend to think of them as the opposite. But I have um, an anecdote that I think really uh, drives the point home of the uh, aversion to risk taking. So I was doing work, this was several years ago, uh, for, uh, uh, you know, in the kind of life sciences biotech space, and they wanted to, to design a fairly sophisticated intranet. It was kind of fun. And, and so I said, just, you know, go wild. I said, are you sure? They said, absolutely, just go wild, just really. And so I did it. I hired a subcontractor to help me. We're doing all stuff. I presented the designs. They said, oh, no, that's way too out there. We can't do that. You know, and this is after I had followed up repeatedly and said, are you sure that you really want to, you know, go, go to the extreme? And so they thought they did, but they really didn't. And just a quick follow-up on that, um, when I've worked with clients and have a long-standing relationship with them, I play a little game. And as you both know, one way to present designs is to give them three options, right? It's a fairly common approach. You know, here are three options. So I would typically in those situations say, you know, here's option A, here's, here's option A, very similar to what they had. Here's option B, a, you know, a little bit different, a little bit of a stretch. And here's the, you know, real real stretch, you know, really creative idea. And I would write on a post-it note before I presented which one I thought they were going to choose. And I'd put it <laughs> face down. And now I'd this say, was based on, were you, were you writing that based on this particular client or is this, would you, do you write the same thing on the card? Uh, it, it was for per individual project, okay. Okay. but it often was the same. And okay. I was right every time. And usually they, and, and I'd like to tell you it's because I'm, you know, this amazingly clairvoyant guy, but that's yes. not the reason. The, ability. <laughs> the reason is that people are in the, in this respect, fairly predictable. They want to do something a little different, but so A is the safe option. B is, is, a, you know, just a little bit different and C is the stretch. Let's do something really not radical, but really very different clients inevitably chose B. I would say 80% of the time. So I was almost always right. And so uh, now, again, you can only do this when you have a long-standing relationship with the client. You know them well. They'll take it the right way. You don't do this on your first or second engagement, of course. But the point is that people, even, and, and some of these were startups, I might add. Uh, and some of them were like internal, like actual startups. Some were kind of internal startups, if you know mm -hmm. what I mean. And it didn't, or big, it didn't matter, you guys. It, was, it honestly, the size the domain, the age of the people. None of that mattered. Now, now granted, this is this is anecdotal. I don't have stats. Right, I didn't right. do this 6,000 times, but it, I thought that was very interesting. You know, uh, gender, I mean, it just, as far as I could tell, it did not matter. Well, you know, it, one of the more interesting, one of the more interesting, at least anecdotally again, things that I've seen is you know, there are a lot of companies, organizations that I guess their self-identity is that they, you know, they take risks and they make a safe environment. Um, and when you actually go and kind of peer, like, like hang out in the environment, everyone is just as conservative as possible. <laughs> um, and they don't want to rock the boat and they don't want to stand out because um, there's because oftentimes in those cultures, there's a lot of instability and who's boss, mm. the bosses are moving around all the time. You know, mm. if you think think of like a really, really, really boring company, you know, like some sort of, you know, like insurance, actuary, something, 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 right? So 
on one hand, you know, they're they're not trying to rock the boat at all, um, and that's fine. They're they're kind of you know they're trying to hit singles, you know. So what what's a big risk to them is like a very small risk to you know to maybe a tech company, but right. be, but oftentimes in those companies, and I'm not saying that the corporate structure is great. But you have um, people who have been working together for 20 years and it's mm-hmm. older and the bosses are the same. And so there's it, in some ways there's more trust. Um, so it, it can it can go both ways. But but one of yeah. the thi- one of the things that's funny is that just because a company says that they promote trust and that they're you know, that that they want their employees to take risks um, it often doesn't happen because then if the employees take risks and it doesn't work, then those employees often get blamed and fired or moved or passed up. Right. So two responses to that. One is, I think I hear you saying, essentially, it's not true. The, the leaders are, and they may even believe it in their minds. I don't, I do not think that they are being dishonest. In no, most no, cases. no, no, no. Yeah, they totally, they, they, they believe it all. They believe it, but it's actually not true because, you know, even, even you know, the COO, right, or the CIO doesn't, could totally, you know, the number two, number three, you know, depending how you're structured, doesn't necessarily, con, you know, control the entire culture, right? Um, but uh, at the same time, I would. Uh, so that's one reason. And 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 as far as your example of like an insurance company, and I used to work for an insurance company, so I know a little bit about this. Even in, in a in a place like that, even though there are people who work together for a long time, and I worked at some other places too. You're right. Certainly, there are trusting relationships, but at the same time, as you well know, yeah. you know, if there is any mistrust, it can become calcified. So, if there's like, let's mm. say you have a good relationship with the people on your team, and maybe people on the other team in a different department you work closely with, but oh, we've always had trouble with. So, departments A and B get along really well together. Let's pretend, but department C, oh, they're a little difficult. Even, you know, if those guys have turnover, even you know, that mistrust can become calcified. And, and so I don't think, the, and I don't think this is exactly what you were saying, but just to extend, I don't think that the duration of having people there for a long time necessarily results in more trust. If there's any history of one, you know, problems between departments or between teams or two, as you said, the person takes a risk and, and fails and then gets hammered. So I'm not sure duration is necessarily going to help. Oh. Yeah. Uh, so, so I mean, and you know, in like a one, you know, one little paragraph summary, basically, to have a culture of trust, um, you need punishment, and everyone in the group has to be held to the same standards. And so, oftentimes, you know, whether it's a tech company or an insurance company, if the people above are not, um, you know, are 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 not able to be criticized and kind of turn into these godlike figures where I feel like you get a meeting with them, it's a really big deal, and like right, everyone right. just like sucks up to them all the time, which I mean is the case in most companies, um, then yeah, you're not gonna have, it's not a culture of trust, because not everyone is, you know, some people are above the law, so so to speak, but. Right, and I think I think that's exactly what, you know, to, to, to circle back to where we started with psychological safety, that is what Amy Emmons and the Harvard professors are arguing, and I thought that's exactly what you were saying in the yeah. last episode. Yes. I do have a couple, there are some suggestions in the literature for how to, you know, uh, mitigate this, this 
problem, maybe not eliminate it, but mitigate this issue. Would you guys like me to just briefly yeah, list some of those ideas? Yeah, so there's a book called Why, uh, Why Great Leaders, Leaders Don't Take Yes for an Answer by Michael Roberto, who is, who is a professor who studies decision science. And he talks about uh, uh, role play. So, you know, just putting yourself in someone else's shoes. And he cites a very famous example. I suspect you guys have heard of it. Andy Grove, you know, the former CEO of Intel, you know, when they made the big decision, you know, to move, you know, from memory to, to chips, you know, to producing the chips, he and a colleague sat around and said, you know, what if somebody came in, if the board fired us and somebody came in, somebody new came in, what would that person do? Not what should they do, but what would they do or what could they do? And by by just engaging in that, you know, relatively straightforward mental simulation, they changed the entire direction of the business and Intel thrived. Because when they were having that discussion, the memory, the business of, you know, just computer memory was the, the profit margins were declining. Well, that's so funny because I feel like if you talk to anyone who's in a company, you're like, hey, so how's how how's company X to work for? Well, blah, blah, blah. Well, what what's the problem? And like everyone knows what the problem is. And they probably even have solutions. And so, you know, but like no one actually would do anything about it. It's not their job. Right, 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 yeah. right. So, but if you just so, say so like what what should if someone just came in and like what? was a new CEO, what should they do? Oh, you or, should just do X yeah. and X and X and it would fix all the problems. Or, or what could they do? Yeah. You know, what, what, cause sometimes yeah. in the literature you'll see that, and I know this is a minor distinction, but what could or would you do? The idea is to kind of open it up so not to be so uh, prescriptive, right? But, but what yes. could you do? What's possible? I mean, within reason. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm not saying that, you know, Intel should have changed and started making, you know, uh, you know, what would then have been a new thing like Tesla's or something. But so role play is one. Another one is mental simulation. And in this book, uh, Michael Roberto cites the work of Gary Klein, and I'm pretty sure, Susan, that you've read some of Klein's work. Gary Klein is a psychologist who's just done some fascinating work on pattern recognition. Mm -hmm. I'll skip the history on that, but just to mention Herbert Simon was a very famous, very famous social scientist who was kind of the groundbreaker on that. But Klein's work is really interesting. So what he basically has said is that He's done studies on firefighters and ICU nurses, basically people with deep experience and expertise in a specific area. And what those people do is they actually do not weigh various options in a situation because they don't have time. Instead, they play out one scenario in their mind, like as, it, as things are happening, like if there's a problem in the ICU, you know, with an infant, if there's a fire, like, like they're literally standing there right in the fire and they determine if it's likely to seek to succeed and if it is likely they take action if not they go to the next alternative the reason they can do this this mental simulation and do it so fast is because they have deep experience so he called uh klein refers to that as intuition and i thought it was very interesting because there's a lot of there are a lot of misconceptions about intuition but you can only do it based on deep experience so the bottom line is intuition is essentially pattern recognition based on your deep experience. So a firefighter cannot do it in a hospital, right? And the nurse, ICU nurse, can't do it while fighting a fire. And so role play is number one, this, this mental simulation based on intuition, which is pattern recognition is number two. The third one, or a third uh, solution is conceptual models. So leaders in an organization can identify you know, a specific, specific conceptual model 
and then assign staff to use different lenses. You know, so the idea is each person goes off and, you know, kind of examines the problem, tries to find stuff out from a different point of view, and then they come back together instead of all sitting in a room, right, and getting into the group thing, group thing problem, which we're all well familiar with. So that's not a radical idea, but at the same time, if you think about how meeting, uh, how problem solving often happens in organizations, a lot of times you will have a bunch of people in a room. We've all been in those situations. And it's not that that can't work, but you get back to groupthink, you get back to some of the stuff you were, we were just talking about, psychological safety. What if I'm in the room with the boss? Then I have an idea, but I'm not sure the boss is receptive or my boss's boss is there or it's another team and I don't know them well, you know, all those kinds of things. Well, it's tough, you know, because like, so like, let's say um, that there's a boss who's in charge of toasters and right. you have an idea of how to make the toasters better. Well, by saying your idea, you are implicitly implying that they are not doing the best job they could with the toasters. Very good point. And Very good point. that's, yeah. But that's the truth. If they were doing a perfect job with toasters, you wouldn't you wouldn't need to do anything. And every organization right. would be perfect. <laughs> you know? Right. It, it, a lot of it does come back to that that, you know, psychological safety and trust. That's why I was fascinated by the episode. I, I, I listen to just about every episode you guys do, and I'm not just saying I I really do. And this one really struck me. I, the the culture of trust, because I thought, oh wow, you know. So uh, so just to wrap up here, so role play is number one, mm -hmm. mental simulation. Uh, you know, based on intuitions, number two, conceptual models, number three, uh, get going off on your own, you know, to avoid some of what you just said, Guthrie, and and four is just point counterpoint, right? So devil's advocate and, uh, you know, just kind of, uh, uh, you know, divide people in into production teams and uh, and uh, a product team and, and uh, see if you can, you know, actually you want to engender conflict. Another thing that um, Gary Klein talks about, a devil's advocate, is just seek out the person in your organization with whom you often disagree. I used to do this all the time. There's a person on my team. We had respect for each other, but we didn't like each other. <laughs> <laughs> we just didn't. Was <laughs> that <know>? me? <laughs> yeah, Susan, that was it. Was it me, Eric? <laughs> this was at the insurance carrier. That's all I'll say. So anyway, uh, but... No, wait a minute. Did the two of you know... They oh, respected yeah. each other and didn't like each other. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It, yeah, I mean, this was I, all out in the open. I, well, it was out in the open as it can be, you know, in, in that kind of environment. But we would consult each other from time to time, and we usually did. We disagreed about a lot of stuff, but the person was very talented, worked very hard, had a different background than I did. So that person's knowledge was valuable. The fact that we weren't going to become best chums didn't mean that we couldn't learn from each other. So was there tension sometimes? Absolutely. Uh, but that at least, it, and I'm, there are probably many examples when I have not done this, so, you know, sought out someone else's opinion, knowing that they're gonna disagree. I probably should do it more, but I do, I do feel good about the fact that I did that over a period of about five years well, with you this know, individual. It was probably helpful that, that you actually did, you respected them but didn't like them because I think you know, if you, well, me, and this is just my my own psychology at work. You know, if I like someone, then I don't want to have conflict with them. Right, right. I don't want to disagree with them. I, you know, because, and I, I'll want them to feel that 
that they know I appreciate them, you know, and all that will get involved. So I'm less likely to, you know, go to them and listen to their idea and even, you know, and, and me and, and choose whether to use some of it or not, you know, because I'll feel like, well, I have to uh, agree with them or I'll hurt the relationship. So it's probably really useful to do that with someone that, you know, you respect, but it's not that important to you if they, you know, if they think you're being stupid. emotionally. That's a very good point, <laughs> right? You know, it's like, yeah. So I'm going to argue with him, and he he does he won't like me again. But that's all right because I don't really like him, and yeah. he already doesn't like deal. me. <laughs> yeah, he already doesn't like me, so no big deal. How much worse? Yeah, can, yeah that's, that, a that's interesting. Point. That's a very and, and Guthrie, I'm wondering about because um, we just posted. Uh, uh, one of Guthrie's videos that that I actually want to do a whole podcast episode on, so I don't want to talk about it too much here. But I'm wondering too if um, the status quo bias gets in the way too. I was thinking about when you, Eric, you were talking about you know how you need to like have people go out and 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 bring back information and right. rather than just sitting in the room just to solve explore. a problem. Just explore. And, and I think it's so. I think we have, um, you know, these these ways of of working and interacting in group in a group that just become so ingrained. We're gonna. Um, I'm hoping pretty soon we're gonna have we're gonna interview uh, Kevin Hoffman who wrote uh, the book called Meeting Design, and we're gonna talk about you know meetings and how you do them. But I'm just struck with how. You know, there's just this usual way we go about solving problems and we don't change. And guess I'm thinking about, um, you know, we've been in meetings with clients where, you know, we're talking about some pretty big stuff, you know, pretty big changes, right, to their products or services. And it's like we're, you know, we're sitting in a room and, you know, one person in the room maybe has been out in the field. <laughs> Oh, you know, oh and everyone God, else in the room is hasn't been out in the field for you know maybe a long time, or me, you know, or or oh. whatever. And it's like you yes. know we shouldn't. Yes. Is this should we really be making these decisions oh. that have such a big impact without going out and you know talking to people and interviewing? And this is why you know in the field oh. of UX, right? Why you yes. have to do user testing. You can't just sit in the room. That's and, right. and, and and go through big, the design. Big, but the big, status quo, big if the status quo is, no, we just get together and we talk about it mm. and make decisions, then then you're not going to do something different. But here's the interesting thing. What? So with this particular company, um, they had... That you think I have in mind. Yes. Okay. They... Um, <laughs> And they, I don't know if we're thinking about the same company. Oh, oh, we're probably thinking about, about different companies. I see. <laughs> um, but there was, you know, the, the other, the, one of the other things I was going to say is, you know, sometimes um, corporate leadership knows this. If you have a good exec and you can get top-down approval, some of the best ways to break down these barriers is to bring in someone from the outside to say the things to the execs that mm-hmm. other people in the company perhaps are scared to say, to be like, "Hey, you should, you sh-, or you know, you mo- you might have been thinking about user testing. I encourage you to do this. 
I think you have to do this. The way you set this up over here is stupid. The way you've set this up over here is fine. Like just like like neutral ways that really, really then allow, I feel. So if you have like that outsider in the room who says it, yeah. Then, then the per then the person who actually works at the company, who maybe has never said anything out of you know fear, then all of a sudden they can you know and the so 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 the so you know the 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 big exec asks the outsider, what do you think about X? The outsider yeah. can say the truth, in a non-judgmental, positive way. The, um, you know, big exec who has being told that well you could have maybe done this better. Not that it's your fault personally, but you know, whoever you were in charge of could have could have done a better job with this. And the and the exec takes it and says, oh, that's a good point. Um, it then empowers once you've all of a sudden developed a culture of trust. And then it empowers, you know, the VP who's in the room who has for, for the last seven years hasn't said anything because or, ha or has been saying the same thing and getting nowhere. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. It happens a lot. Then says, hey, well, you know, if you're thinking about doing this, why don't we do X, right? Yeah, and then the, yeah. and then the exec's like, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. um, but it's but like without that outside person to almost facilitate the the insulting of the bigwig or insulting, <laughs> not, not on a personal Educa level, but on a professional educating. level. Educating. No, I well, I I really do think it's it it has to. It's not just it's not educating. It's saying that you you are not infallible. That you and you, your department right, you've missed something have, important have, have or missed you... important things. Yeah. And, I, and the, the exec is like, oh, I hear that, and I accept that as a good idea, and I will endeavor. We, I as the in, being in charge of the team, you know, I slash we will endeavor to. Um, do a better job it then empowers yeah. other people who have great ideas about how to do a better job to then open to up speak up yeah yes yes that's a yeah and it's one of the great thing i mean it's true and it's one of the reasons for bringing in a consultant although you you also then have to think that the people who do bring in consultants whether they are consciously aware of it or not are essentially saying yeah, go ahead. You know, let's right. let's find out where what we've missed or where our weak points are. I mean, rarely. I mean, this happens sometimes, but I think most of the time. Well, I don't know. Do you? Do you I, going. I yeah, think most but... of the time people bring in a consultant to tell them what the problem is or what they've missed or what they could do quite differently. Um, they rarely bring someone in to just bless the direction that, you know, they, they know there's a high probability the consultant is going to say, nah, you missed something here. Um, so that means that they're, they're on some level, somebody's open to yes, be vulnerable I, I think, in that I way. think that's true. I would add often, not always, but often, there is uh, a challenge, and this has come up quite a bit when I've taught over the past several years, is sometimes, and this is true when somebody proposes a change internally or externally as consultant, as, as you and I are, Susan. So let's say, Susan, you go in there and the VP of marketing or the VP of customer experience hired you, right? So there's a lot of UX in there, one hopes, right? They're so closely yeah. tied. 
and you make these recommendations and the VP says, oh, yeah, I agree with that. Let's do that. And and all the people in the middle, the directors and the managers nod their heads. Yes, yes. And then nothing happens. Yeah. What I have found pretty consistently in the 18 years I've been doing this work is that there's a, there can be a great deal of resistance in the middle. And I, there's so much talk in UX about getting buy-in at the executive level, which is critical. I think we'd all agree with that. But one of the things I've noticed, particularly in teaching, I've had you know the students come to me and say, "I'm the director of UX. I, I'm in the middle, <laughs> you know, and I want this change. And I've got I got people below me who are all in, and I got the executives who are all in. My problem, Eric, is that they're the, my peers, the other directors, mm-hmm. are fighting me tooth and nail. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I've seen this probably a hundred times, and so people have asked me, "Well, what's the solution?" And I said, well, (laughs) that's not easy. But one thing I've encouraged is, you know, I've encouraged people to move away from like World Usability Day. And I know that's very popular, but I feel like you're kind of preaching to the choir. And and instead, I've encouraged people to do things like latch on to something that already exists. If there's a customer experience day, if there's a project that's led by marketing or something that's related, but not core UX, latch on to those people, get their buy-in. And that's not super easy, but I think it's better than just standing up and saying UX is great, mm-hmm. UX is great, or whatever your field, you know, mm-hmm. if you do something different, like you want to do a different kind of development, say this particular model we're using isn't working or we need to adjust our agile process, right? It doesn't have to be UX, but I think just kind of standing up and saying we need to do this doesn't work. And hiring a consultant does help, but then you've got to implement. And of course, that's the hard part. And so I really think if you can latch on to another area if you can establish it, we're back to psychological safety and trust. If you can establish that trust and go there, then it's going to spread because where I've consistently seen resistance, and this happened fairly recently yet again, is in the middle. What I think of as the middle, and I mean by that directors and managers, the middle management, mm-hmm. because they're they're busy, they're stressed, and they have ownership of their little area. And, you know, there's, there's fear there and there's aversion, there's risk aversion, right? Mm-hmm. So that's, again, you know, making people feel psychological safe, well, psychologically safe. It's not to, easy. To tie this, I think this ties in perfectly with where we started. If you, yes. are, in, if you are held accountable for, a, for thing X and person A comes to you and says, hey, change, you know, here's the podcast uh, schedule. You are very scared to accept that because you want the control because ultimately you are responsible for thing X. And so if the top management comes with their consultant and talks to the middle manager and says, hey, we're going this way. And by the way, if it doesn't work, uh, you're, we're gonna blame you in six months. Um, you know, and, and there's, there's not, and, and, and the, the executive who's perhaps pushing it says, hey, if it doesn't work, don't worry. I won't blame you. I'll take all, you know, when do they say, I'll take all the blame, just implement that the best you can right. and I'll, you'll, you won't get in trouble, you know, regardless. I, I, I don't think that's, you know, it's, well, it's never communicated that way, but I think the underlying appreciation is, well, if our, you know, numbers go down for our, you know, the metric that you are right. ultimately judged on, you know, it's your fault. Um, it would make all the sense in the world that they'd be resistant when an outsider to them 
shows up and says, hey, do things this way, and then they are no longer perhaps in control of the ultimate outcome that they will then be judged on. You know, this right. this reminds me right. of um, many years ago. Um, I was doing some work for um, a company that makes, made at that point, cl- basically made and sold clothing, online retailer, an early one. And they had just, I was getting a, a tour of their distribution center where, you know, they uh, orders came in and these people would go find the items, right, and put the order together or the, uh, actually it was automated. So the right items would come to them and they would put it in a box and send it out. And they had just um, implemented a new software to for the line to for the automation in which uh they the people who are doing the packing could adjust the software on the fly to change the kind of orders they got uh the the speed with which orders were coming so for instance you know you can get you could get one order that has 10 things in it right and it's going to take you a while to pack that all up. And so maybe you do a few orders like that in, a, in an hour versus you get orders that are just have one thing in them and you can pack that up really fast. And uh, normally, you know, there would some program is, is controlling all that or one person is controlling all that. And what they did was they gave control to the each person. So you, each person could go in and adjust the automation and, uh, and say essentially today or right now, I'd like to do, you know, big orders or I'd like to do small orders or the orders are coming too fast or the orders are coming too slowly to me. And um, at first when they implemented this is like people were just like, I'm not changing it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm not. I'm not going to do this. But then they, you know, they experimented. They were encouraged to just try it a little bit, and uh, you know, people be. Felt, and this this place had probably some of the highest culture of, of trust scores that any operate any company I've seen would have. Um, and uh, so it actually became a big hit to go uh, and uh-huh. you know dial it and try things out and know that at the end of the day you weren't going to get in trouble because you know you had changed it this way or changed it that way so they were able to do it because they had such a high you know an authentic sense of psychological safety and as you said high scores and cultural trust and i think also because they could it wasn't a permanent change you know Uh, I didn't have right. to decide from here on out I'm going I could just kind of fiddle with it you know and try this way and try that way and try this way and I think that sense of experimentation you know that it's okay to experiment but also things. but also if it doesn't work you can just run back to your safety hole 
You can. You can just say, I'm going to set the dials exactly the way I had them before because I don't know what the heck's going on. That's a very good point. Right. And again, it's that, you know, risk aversion and that sense of uncertainty that our our brains don't feel comfortable with. That is that's very interesting. That's a very interesting. All right. So we should do a check in here at the at the outline and see. What haven't we talked about? Well, there's one thing I wondered about if, if we have just a few minutes to talk yeah. about yes. choice architecture. Yeah. Uh, that's something that Guthrie mentioned at the at the end of the episode about the uh, culture of trust. Yeah. And what I'm curious about is what you two were just talking about. You know, is there a way to use choice architecture in an organization, you know, in a work environment to make it easier for people to take risks? And here's why I asked that, because I've, I've read, you know, some of the choice architecture literature, and it sounds like you have too, Guthrie. And a lot of the examples are, you know, very much about, you know, like at Google, for example, you know, they, they give people dessert plates with just a bite size, you know, like two bites instead of a lot of people, you know, like, oh, here, take as much as you want. And you have to go back in line to get it again. They're trying to encourage healthier eating, right? Smaller plates. We, you know, we're familiar with this. Another one is the uh, at the gas pump. You know, the, the nozzles are different sizes, you know, so you can't put diesel. You literally can't put a diesel pump into your, into your regular car, that kind of thing. And so a lot of the examples I've seen of choice architecture, like in the books, like Nudge, uh, you know, by Thaler and Sunstein, and that's a that's a very well-known book, and in all kinds of other places, have been a little bit more on the individual behavior level preventing mistakes, and that's all important and interesting. I haven't encountered as much about how could you use choice architecture, which is just, as, as the book says, just nudging people, right, just a little bit, and Susan, this is right up your alley as a behavioral science scientist, you know, can we use that same idea of choice architecture to nudge people to take more risks, I presumably based on the assumption that there is, you know, this this culture of trust, a sense of psychological safety, and I I started to think about it, but I haven't, to be honest, come yet come up with any like really concrete, you know, solutions or techniques. And I was wondering if you two have have thought about choice architecture in this context of work and getting people to take a risk and and work differently and perhaps more creatively. Uh, yeah, sure. So, so I think of choice architecture not as a nudge, um, but as a philosophy. So, nudges the Thaler, the the Richard Thaler nudges um, are just it's it's one you know it's it's one small piece of choice architecture, um, but but you can use choice architecture. Choice architecture to me, um, and maybe no one else agrees with me, but to me, it's um, a way of thinking which is I want people to do X. And so I'm going to look at the decisions they make and I'm going to set up those decision trees in such a way to encourage them to take this path. And so whether that's, I want them to, you know, traditionally it's like I want end consumer to eat less. So I will use small servings so they have to make more, you know, decision points, blah, blah, blah. Um, And, and, but but there's no reason that you can't do it on a much much larger and grandiose scale. And in fact, I think um, people are using choice architecture. And I mean, like like if whenever you set up your the 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 organization of your company, I I think you're setting up. You know, you're 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 you don't you don't you wouldn't call it choice architecture, but 
where does the how does the IT department work? Um, how you know when someone responds has a problem with their computer, what do they do and who do they talk to? And uh, you know all those things you they're not there is a choice architecture there in my opinion. It's not it's just not a thought about choice architecture. It's it's like it's a naturally conscious. Yeah, yeah, it's like a naturally well, occurring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the um, environment, and I guess uh, just 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 jump just for a sec that yeah. you know I guess nudging people's behavior like like trying to modify the environment. But I I do like the way you're thinking about it. choice architecture, something broader. But I I believe the idea is you know how can we tweak the environment rather than coming in saying we're going to make right. this radical change. And but I think I take your point though because if you're gonna if if someone's going to tweak that environment, that would probably be conscious. But you're saying that this just happened. I mean, choice architecture exists whether we're aware of it or not. Is that part of what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. The the the. That's yeah, yeah. But okay. So let's so let's let's now um, move towards. We want people to take more risks, and how can we how can we use the the architecture of choice to encourage people to take more risks? Okay. So. Yes. Um, I mean, it would depend on the specific context, but let's just let's. I'll, I'll try and I'll try and do it um, with broad strokes. So, if you want people to take more risk, then what they need to do is they need to feel as if they um, will be rewarded for taking risks. That taking risks uh, will will benefit them, okay, in in some way, and won't negatively affect them. So, uh, there's a couple ways to do this. Um, the, you know, the simplest way, okay, this is not simple whatsoever. The first, the first way that came up, <laughs> that came, that came to mind, um, if you really, let's, if you wanted to go all in, okay, this is this, if you wanted to go all in, um, whenever you are, are part of your team, you, you know, you come up with the, okay, we can, we can do things path A, path B, path C, right? And, you know, may, so maybe that's like we have the menu on the left and we have the menu on the right and we have the menu on the top, something like that. And that's a really dumb example. But right there, there are there are three ways we can do this. And then um, what the team can do together is collectively vote on what is the safe approach. What is the, you know, and, and I would, do, oh, it, I would do it on like a, you know, zero to two scale, perhaps mm -hmm. where one is um is just regular middle of the road 0.5 is safe one and a half is like more risky you know and so and so you and so together the team would would rate um individual proposals or you could rate anything you know uh how uh how you respond to an email if you really wanted to right well we could go for the fences and try to get the sale right now or we could play things slow and safe it, whatever it is Every you know you could just weight everything based on risk, and then each employee would have then a risk profile. How much risk do they take at work versus how safe they are? And you could make right. compensation based on risk taking. So people who take more who 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 come up with and um and and implement more risky behaviors are compensated higher. It's part of your pay structure, and so middle managers. Ooh. Would you know the middle managers whose teams, uh, who whose teams have like the you know the highest you know total risk you know per per per, per person would get paid more. So 
you know, at the metrics of what are the middle managers judged on is risk taking. I mean, so often I think I find and most it happens in most people to most people. They say, hey, um, so at the end of the year, here's your you know, we want this to be a positive environment and we want people to do this and do that, do this. And it's like, well, um, at the end of the year, the only thing that you're judged on is like what are like the scores of X and or you know how many right. widgets do you ship and if that's right. the only thing that matters that's the only thing that managers are going to try and focus on so yeah so that that's like one crazy out in the sky way to to do it and i oh susan go ahead well i was Can just I... gonna say it does a couple things it also makes people just more aware of risk of the concept of risk because i think a lot i think for a lot of people they don't necessarily think that way. They're not they're not consciously thinking of. So, what's the safe option? What's the risky option? There's only one problem with this idea. We already know from my rigorous Post-it study that people are always going to choose the middle option. <laughs> <laughs> Probably no, they are. No, I like this idea a lot. I like, and I hadn't thought of this, but no, actually, I really do like this idea. And you're exactly. I think you're both exactly right. I think Susan. Yeah, people don't. Think about taking risk, and I do wonder if those of us who have chosen to be consultants, though it has its own challenges, I'm not saying we're amazing risk takers, but maybe we think about it a little differently. Because I have encountered situations where I've been surprised at some of the decisions that have been made that my clients have made, and if I've expressed a different idea, sometimes it's very well received. Sometimes I get a litany of reasons why that couldn't possibly be done, right? And you, I'm sure, have had well, this and and Gatsby, I'm also thinking about situations. I mean, we have. One, you know, one client in particular I'm thinking of where the object is to decrease risk, not increase risk. Could you could you flip this idea on its head or do you have to do something differently if, you, if what you were trying to do is decrease risk? Well, that's, that's a little that's a that's different. That's a different because that, that's 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 a corporate risk, which is like, what is the risk that like something will break? Yeah. Or someone will will do something out of protocol. We'll make it your, yeah. Yeah. And I think I think that's a little different. I think we're you know, we're just talking about about stepping outside of your comfort zone. Yes. So, okay. To, to and that a, is di- and that is different than So, but okay. you know, think about it, right? Um you're in a meeting and and like and cuz 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 you have to what you're trying to do is you're trying to structure a company so that when you're in that, you know, Tuesday morning meeting, that everyone loves um, the the t- the the 10:30 you know morning morning uh, everyone gets together meeting, and um, someone says, "Hey, I think we're doing our online portal completely wrong, and I don't think we've done a good job with it, and I think it should be changed to this new thing that no one else is doing." What you want is for everyone in the room to like stand up and give like a standing ovation, <laughs> right? Like that, like that would be right. the ideal outcome. Like, wow, yes. thank you for saying this, and like, you know, just like like there, like that would be the example of a positive mm. reaction and you that positive feedback of of saying going outside the comfort zone and saying risky things. Um, and right. of course, that yes. never happens because if you said that. Like everyone would look nervously around 
Right. And then, you know, maybe one of the execs would probably step up and say, okay, well, that's a good point. Like, let's, let's work on that, you know? And maybe it works and maybe it doesn't. But, like, there's tension in the room if someone says, I, I think we've done everything wrong. Um, instead of pure joy uh, and, and, you know, admiration. Um, so so how, how can you get from awkward to standing O? I mean, that's, that, yes, that, that's you'd, a... you'd have to plan, and that's what, where your choice architecture to, uh, to, to, to incentivize people to think about things differently would, would come in. One thing I've wondered about, it's a, it's a concept that I hadn't seen very well I, that I came up with when I, was, when I was working on my blog, is what I just refer to as micro decisions, just as a way of basically empowering employees to say, we're going to give you complete you know, authority, latitude to make decisions within a certain space. And if they're meaningful decisions, then, and the person feels that they have some, yes, accountability, but also some authority, you know, I, I've seen that work, you know, in occasionally. And I've wondered if, and I just use micro decisions to kind of refer to the scope, right? So you're not making a decision about, you know, uh, of a hundred million dollar budget you're making decisions about are we going to pursue this small project you know or are we going to do this particular research in this way but then give that person more latitude because not surprisingly when people are truly engaged and feel that they have some authority and they're being listened to then you know they they feel that they want to be more accountable and mm -hmm. that can i think contribute to a sense of of psychological safety, which might be one small way, possibly Guthrie, I'm not sure, to get to the standing standing ovation, which I love that idea, I really do. You would have to, I think, have a variety of techniques. And I really like your one about pay. I think that, you know, you have to take risks. And, and if your manager is gonna get, you know, some kind of uh, raise or bonus, he, ha he or she has to encourage the team to, you guys have to do it, he's gotta basically, you know, really persuade everyone as team to take risks. I like that a lot because now you've made the manager accountable, which is right. You were saying not just the individuals, but the manager. Or imagine a universe where, um, so so if you wanted to, for example, empower someone, um, a man where we're to, to 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 make their own decisions. Okay, imagine a universe in which everyone um, received praise. You know, like what, what's the definition of a project well done? And what if it was, don't ask your boss for approval. Uh, if, if you just do it yourself, that's a good job. It doesn't matter what the outcome is. The only thing that matters is that you were able to do the whole project and make all the decisions. And if you did that, awesome. And like, like. You you know That's you get you get the really pay raise you get your name on the on this the gold star by your name that kind of stuff mm -hmm. because right so so you have to change how people are judging you because right now it's all based on um you know I, I guess per performance of something basically it's did you make your boss look good if you made yes. your boss look good then you win and you get the praise and everyone's like great job and if you didn't then then if you made your boss look bad, then you're like in the doghouse. And that's right. like not fostering, but you know, so, so, so you just have to, you know, you just have to change the incentives. And I mean, you know, there's the financial incentives and then the social incentives. Yes. Yes. Uh, that's so, great. Yeah. That's really I, well thought out. I, I think that those are really interesting ideas. 
Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I'm going to interrupt because our hour is up and we could keep going for a long time because I know this group. <laughs> <laughs> did, did you have any other talkers. questions? Did I have any other questions? Or did anyone? Uh, uh, I, I have I lots, a, but uh, uh, I, I think we're going to have to do part okay. two or okay. part three. Good. Yeah, no, this is a great, great conversation. And um, we kind of wove in and out of an outline, didn't we? Yep, but that's okay. That's All know. right. Good combination of risk-taking, at psychological safety, uh, and control freakness. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and choice architecture. Let's close on that. And choice architecture? Like, okay. Choice architecture. Now we sound like the Harvard professors, right? <laughs> Eric, I know that you have... Um, I'm going to be posting uh, when, when we post the podcast. I'll write a blog post about it. And... Because you have lots of ideas about articles and books and um, yeah, what, and so on. What do you have Great suggestions. I, yeah, sorry. anything in particular you want to? What of your stuff should we plug? Well, I put I did put some of my blog posts on the list, and the reason I put those on there is is they were directly relevant to what we're talking about, and. Yeah. One of them, I call it how to design for brain quirks, has gotten actually a good bit of traffic of, of my blog post. That's been the uh, most heavily visited over the period of the last. All right. So if we years. wanted to find your blog and if we want to find you, what's the best way to get in touch with you and read your blog? So if you go to UIUXtraining.com, that's the Is that just page. all one, one, yes. one, one word, so to speak? Yep. UIUXtraining.com. Um, and it's I, I have a homepage, and then there's a link to my blog. Okay. So it's right there, and then people can read that, and I would, I would love it, and I would love it if people leave feedback or contact me about the, the training that we offer around UX research and design decisions, how design science can help you make better design decisions. And you have an email that there at the website that they can contact you at? Okay. Eric, thanks so much for coming on our podcast. Well, thank you, guys. It was a lot of fun. And and you, do you feel psychologically safe? I, I do. <laughs> okay, just checking. But not too safe. <laughs> not too safe, right? Because I have to take All right, good. That's good. All right. Thanks. Thanks, thanks Guthrie. Yep, thank you. Bye. <laughs>